series of uh, a spirit-filled disciple, follow me, things that we need to grow in to know to be uh, seeking God to do more in us so that we can accomplish the will of God for us and through us and impacting our community. And so today's topic is going to be the personal mission that we all have from God. Now you might think, well, I've never heard this personal mission that God has for me. I, I've heard it in the church context. I've heard uh, other people talk about it. Does God have something for me? The answer is absolutely yes. If you are here and there is air in your lungs, then God has a mission and a plan and a goal for you. We talked about it two weeks ago with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that ruach, that, that breath of the Spirit that goes through us. That We talked about how the Word in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and speaking the name of Jesus, that that Word comes out of us with the, uh, the Holy Spirit backing it up, moving it into action, and us being able to accomplish great things for God's kingdom. So today I want to start off with reading a few things about uh, some successful people that have these things said about them. Because how many of you, the, and I shared this a couple weeks ago with my art teacher in elementary school, that I don't even remember their name, but it was like second or third grade, and basically told me that I couldn't draw. And ever since that moment, I've just been that, well, I can't draw because my second or third grade teacher told me I couldn't draw, and that I drew bubblegum trees instead of real trees, and I'm no good at drawing. How many of you have ever had that kind of experience at some point in your life? Somebody told you you couldn't do something, and then you just kind of believed it and you ran with it, and you, to the state, yeah, there's hands all over the place. Well, here's some things that were said about some successful people that I just want you to hear. An expert said of Vince Lombardi, he possesses minimal football knowledge and lacks motivation. That is before he went on to win five NFL championships and Super Bowl one and two as a coach. Uh, that Louisa May Alcott, the author of Little Women, was encouraged to find work as a servant or a seamstress by her family and said she wrote Little Women, which has sold 1.78 million copies over 149 years and has never been out of print. Beethoven handled the violin awkwardly and his teacher called him hopeless as a composer. Not only did he prove himself as a composer, he defied the onset of deafness at the age of 28 to produce an output of 722 works, including nine symphonies, 35 piano sonatas, and 16 string quartets. A newspaper editor fired Walt Disney for lack of ideas. Walt Disney also went on to become bankrupt before he built Disneyland. Thomas Edison's teacher said that he was too stupid to learn anything. Albert Einstein did not speak until he was four years old and didn't read until he was seven. His teacher described him as mentally slow, unsociable, and adrift forever in his foolish dreams. Henry Ford failed and went broke five times before he finally succeeded. And Winston Churchill failed sixth grade. He did not become prime minister of England until he was 66, only after a lifetime of defeats and setbacks. His greatest contributions as a person came when he was a senior citizen. Let all that sink in for a moment, because if you've ever been told, well, you're not going to amount to much, that you can't do this, you can't do that, here's a list of people that we would say that they're extremely successful, and look at all the things that they did and how they were able to impact society, to impact culture. And oftentimes in our lives, something significant is right there just in front of us. And if we would keep going and keep doing what God has called us to do, we would experience something great and amazing happen in our lives. As we spend time in God's word, 
as a disciple is we spend time in prayer as a disciple, serving the local church, worshiping in freedom, listening to the Holy Spirit, all the things we've talked about so far, we start to begin to discover the mission that God has for us. Now, I can't just say, well, this is the exact thing that God has for you to do. That's for God to speak to you. And at the same time, what you don't do when you get the call from God, the mission from God for your life, is come to me and say, this is what God told me that the church should be doing. No, God told you that this is what you should be doing. And the problem so often is we say, well, this is somebody else, or I need somebody else. You might need some help, and you might need some assistance, but God is equipping you to do that which he has called you to do. It's not somebody else's mission. It's not somebody else's, like, hey, I have a great idea. Like, imagine uh, if Walt Disney had came up to me and said, you know what, I have this great idea for Mickey Mouse. I need you to draw him. Well, I'm the guy that draws bubblegum trees. Like, we wouldn't have anything then today. God gives us each our own particular set of skills, giftings, abilities, talents, resources for us to accomplish what he has for us. Now, I believe it's at this point when we begin to discover what God has for us that Satan wants to derail us. Because it might reach a moment where he says, you know what, I might not be able to shake them. They might be making it into heaven. I might not be able to get them into hell. But I can prevent them from accomplishing what God has for them to accomplish. And if I can do that, then maybe the 10 people, the 100 people, the 1,000 people that they were going to impact, I get to keep them. And so he begins to try and get us to focus on something else. And today we're going to be going into the 23rd Psalm. We're going to be really breaking this down. But I really want you to hear this, that so often Satan wants to get our attention from God onto something else, onto greener pastures. I mean, you've heard the saying before that uh, the grass is, when the grass is greener on the other side, there's probably something there that's making it greener. And that sometimes you're like, well, I just, I don't even want the greener grass. My grass is nothing but brown, and that person's, their brown grass is at least growing. Like, I've got dead scorched earth. Like, can I just at least have the, the little bit of green, the little bit of hope. Maybe they put in AstroTurf. I don't know what it is. But they've got something. And you start paying attention and focusing on what somebody else has. Do you want to have proof that this is Satan's plan from the very beginning? This is Genesis 3. This isn't going to be on the screen. But now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Instantly, right off the bat, Eve is in the very presence of God, and the first thing Satan starts doing to attack her is making her question God and looking at another table. God has given her all of this food in the garden. Adam, all of this food in the garden. Where do Adam and Eve go? They get twisted and manipulated, and they start looking at what somebody else or something else has. This is Satan's goal from day one. He has no new tricks. Satan's best effort was when he took uh, those nails in the cross and he lost and he's got nothing. That we, we think so often, well, Satan's, he can do this to me, he can do that to me. He literally can do nothing to you. He's got nothing. His last trick has already been played and now he's just trying to convince you that he's got some special ability or skill to come after you, but you serve the almighty God of the universe that created you, that spoke you into existence, that sent his son to die on your behalf to wipe the sin clean so that you could spend eternity with him in heaven forever. And Satan's just kind of barking like he has some kind of power. He's a little ch chihuahua with a, like a, a boom box trying to over 
play what God is speaking to you. But so often we allow that to speak into our life instead of the voice of the Holy Spirit because we don't take enough time to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and we don't spend enough time in the Word of God and we don't spend enough time in prayer because we're listening to everything except for the one voice that will actually make a difference for us. We even discover the mission of God and then we won't do the mission of God because that might cost me too much. What might you gain? What family member, what friend, what coworker, what person might enter into eternity and spend forever with Jesus because you were willing to give up what you wanted to do here that you can't take to heaven anyways? You have a mission from God, and today we're going to dive into the 23rd Psalm. But before we do, would you repeat after me? Heavenly Father, your word is written in my mind and hidden in my heart. Your word is a lamp onto my feet and a light onto my path. I will seek you with all of my strength. My greatest desire is to be a disciple and to make more disciples. I will live my life according to your word, your word. O oh Lord, is eternal. We're going to look at the 23rd Psalm, but I'm going to break it up into little pieces. This is one of those verses that if you've been around church long enough, you're familiar with. You probably, this is one of those that most Christians probably have memorized in one version or another. Uh, but I want to kind of bring this to a, a different uh, point of your attention today. I want to kind of break it down differently than maybe you've heard before. If you've been here the entire time uh, Annie and I have been here, this is actually kind of in part one of the first two messages that I preached here, but we're going to take it in a totally different direction today. So we're going to start in uh, Psalms 23 and read verses 1 through 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Now, if we just stop there for a moment, it's so encouraging to know that we serve a God who knows and takes care of our needs. But even in the midst of this, do you realize that sheep, unless they're forced to rest at times, will continue to eat until they wipe an entire field clean? So they're led to green pastures, but they're also led to still waters so that they can rest, like stop eating. Like sheep are dumb. How many of you are aware how dumb sheep are? They can drown in the rain because they just look up at the sky and they do not turn away until they like, actually like, can consume enough water where they have died because of just staring up. Why do you think we get referred to as sheep so often? How many of you, you're like, did you just insult me? I insulted myself. This realization that we do the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results, and it doesn't play out that way. But when we look at this, we, just, we see this fact that we have a God who loves us, cares about us, knows what our needs are, knows what we need to, uh, to have to be able to be taken care of, and the fact that we can trust this good shepherd, that we can follow after this good shepherd, we can follow after Jesus knowing that he has our best interests in mind. And so when we move forward into this uh, passage of Scripture, this is the comforting part. Like, I would love to tell you that Psalms 23 ended at verse 
three. I mean, listen to it one more time. Imagine if this is where Psalms 23 ended. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. The end. Amazing song. Like, that would be fantastic, but that's not where it ends. You see, we continue on into verse 4. And this is what's going to comfort all of you so much this morning. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You are going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death in your life. See, I told you, it's super encouraging this morning. You're going to walk through it, but here's the thing, is you can either walk through it with a good shepherd who's going to lead you to green pastures and still waters, or you can do one of these numbers of I'm just going to sit down and I'm going to cry. Like, I might be in it, God, but I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to cry and I'm not going anywhere. You know what happens when you just sit in misery and cry? You stay in misery and cry. You don't allow God to transform your mind. He wants to lead you through because it doesn't say takes you to, it leads you through. So that means you go from one side to the other. But so often we say, you know what, God, I'm done. I'm just going to stay right here until you change my situation. He's trying to change your situation. He's trying to lead you through it, but you're so frustrated and angry that I'm just going to sit here and pout. I'm going to cry. This is where I'm going to be. This is where I'm going to die. I'm going I'm to sit on this hill. And you're, why? Why do we do it consistently? What I love, though, is what follows it up is when he's taking us through, I don't have to fear evil. See, I think this is one of the other things that we, we get locked in on, is that Satan wants us to think he has power. We've already talked about that this morning. He wants us to think that he has power. He has no power. I don't have to fear evil because no weapon formed against me shall prosper. But always remember, just because it says that no weapon formed against you shall prosper doesn't mean weapons won't be formed. So weapons will be formed, but because God is your God, he is your shepherd, he's going to lead you through. And it's one of the things I always love saying, when the enemy attacks you, they're going to do one of two things. They're either going to take you out, you get to go to heaven, win. They fail to take you out, you get a better testimony, can tell more people about Jesus and what the power of God has done in your life, win. We're, that's why no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Because no matter what happens against you, either it's a testament of what you've done in your life or it's a testament of what God has taken me through because he's going to lead you through the valley of shadow of death. In that, uh, we go on to see, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now here's the thing with the rod and the staff. The staff was used to guide the sheep where they needed to go. Again, God is taking you through the valley of shadow of death. But the rod... The rod was essentially a club that was used to defend sheep. So if something came up against the sheep, the shepherd would use the club to beat whatever that, that individual, that, that creature, animal, whatever it is that's attacking the sheep. The club was used to protect the sheep because the shepherd is looking out for the good of his sheep. But here's the interesting thing, and this is where some of us get frustrated with God sometimes. Oftentimes, if the sheep, uh, a sheep began to wander off, the shepherd would bring the sheep back. If the sheep kept going off and wandering away, do you know what the shepherd would do with the club? The shepherd would go up, take the club, break the leg of the sheep, and then would begin to carry the sheep around until its leg healed because that sheep was going to go off and get itself killed 
And so it's better to allow that sheep to have a broken leg for a little while, and then the shepherd is carrying around the sheep to make sure that the sheep is taken care of so that the sheep's leg could heal properly. And once its legs healed properly, guess what it learned not to do anymore? Wander off. And sometimes you're like, well, God, why would you allow this to happen? Because you weren't paying any attention and God needed to do something to get your attention. And you're like, well, that's, that's not very comforting. It is comforting the fact that the shepherd cared enough about you to go after you to then take it. Because you hear that passage of like, well, Jesus leaves the 99 to go after the one. Do you ever wonder what happened to the one? Like, we have this beautiful Im imagery of, like, the shepherd running after the one and carrying it back. And like, oh, you're my perfect sheep. You did nothing wrong. No, the shepherd's going after the one to bring the one back into the fold. But that one might have came back with a broken leg. But know this, the shepherd's going to nurse that one back to health again. Because the shepherd's not going to leave you in pain or in discomfort. But the shepherd's going to bring you back to health again. But there might be a process, if you've intentionally wandered off, to bring that sheep back into proper health again. Now we get to Psalms 23.5 where it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And this is where I want to spend a lot of our time this morning is on this particular passage. Now, in preparing this message today, I went back to my notes from, like I said, this was either the first or the second message I ever preached here when we were candidating to come here as lead pastors. So this puts me at the, the, uh, the age of 32, and when I went back through my notes, I thought one of two things. Either I really have improved as a pastor, or you guys were all crazy for hiring me when I was 32, because I looked at my notes, and I'm like, I wasn't very good when I was 32. <laughs> like, I don't like this, I don't like this. Like, I practically threw like half the message away, because I'm like, that's, that's unpreachable at this point. But one of the things that I wish uh, I was better at that time was when I found references and making sure that I notated those references properly uh, because I could not find the reference for what I'm going to share. This is one of those Jewish traditions, and I don't like bringing that stuff up unless I'm able to say this scholar or that scholar. And so know this, that I, I believe I can still make the complete point, and it still is just as powerful, but no, now I would rather be able to tell you the reference if it came from this uh, perspective or that perspective. But basically, during the, those time periods, the hospitality needed from the Jewish people is different than the hospitality we would have today. If somebody knocked on your door today and said, you know what, I'm in need of food. Uh, can I spend uh, dinner with you and eating at uh, your table? And then can I spend the night uh, at your house? Most of us would be like, who are you and why are you here? And can you please leave now? Or you would have like your ring doorbell and you'd see them pop up on the camera and you'd say, we're not home right now, even though both cars are in the driveway. But at this time, hospitality was such a big deal. And so if a traveler came to your door, there were several things that you needed to do. First, you would provide oil for their head. Essentially kind of like our essential oils today that that they're traveling, they're, they're going through, so this is like a perfume. This is a, if they're, the person, if they might have had lice, that you would do things to help them health-wise, and you would uh, take care of them, that you would provide them the ability for basic hygiene because they've been traveling uh, and they haven't had a chance to take a shower. So you're helping them in that capacity, and then you would provide a meal for them with your family. And all during this time period, you would swap stories during the meal, you would get to know them, and if at the end of the meal that you've enjoyed their company enough, that one of two things would happen. You would offer a cup to them, they would hold out the cup, and you would begin pouring 
them a drink. And in that, if you filled the cup up halfway, it meant I've enjoyed your company, but it's time for you to go. Imagine if it was that easy to tell someone, it's time for you to go. Like, you know what? You've been over a little bit too long. Here's a half cup of, uh, of Diet Coke, of water, of lemonade, whatever it is that you want. I'm going to fill it up halfway. This is like, hey, thanks for coming. Time to go. If the host enjoyed their company enough that they wanted them to spend the night, they would fill it all the way to the top. And when they filled it all the way to the top, it was a matter of saying, I've enjoyed your company so much that I want you to spend uh, the, the night and we'll have another meal in the morning and then you can leave in the morning. So when you hear this, I want you to hear this passage again. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. What is being said here is that God cares so much, David's the one that's writing this, that you've prepared this table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. You so want me in your presence, God, that you're overflowing my cup. Because if I fill it up just to the top, it means like spend the night, stay, stay a little bit longer. But overflowing means never leave my presence. Let that one soak in for a moment. Even as we talked about the Holy Spirit two weeks ago, anointing your head with oil, what does oil represent in the Old Testament? Holy Spirit. So in this moment, I've prepared a table for you in the presence of my enemies. I've anointed your head in oil. I've provided the Holy Spirit for you, and I've given you this cup overflowing so that you never leave my presence, salvation. That's why in a few moments when we go to and do communion, that's what this cup represents, is what Jesus did for us so that we could spend eternity with him. Now, here's the thing that I want you to realize in the, in the process of this too. He's preparing a meal for you. And I want you to think of like your favorite meal and the best quality meal. Like God is preparing this meal for you, but where is it at? In the presence of your enemies. You see, weapons can be formed against you, but they won't prosper. Because this idea that I'm sitting here, I'm in the presence of God Almighty, the situations of life can surround me, but if I'm in the presence of God Almighty and I have exactly what I need, that I've got the Holy Spirit, I've got uh, the promise of salvation in my life, I don't have to worry about what's going on around me. Satan can come up against me and he can try and attack me and he can try and do what he wants to do to me. He's not going to be successful. Because Satan's go-to is to basically try and pull our attention off of God Almighty. How do we know that? Let's just for a moment go back to Genesis chapter 3. You shall, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. He begins attempting to manipulate Eve, manipulate Adam, so that they think God said something different than he did because all of a sudden Eve is now taking her eyes off of the table that God has placed in front of her. What was Adam and Eve's mission? Be fruitful and multiply. And just don't touch that tree. They were given this amazing table of be fruitful and multiply and don't touch one tree. Everything else in the garden's yours. And Satan got her eyes off of the table that was in front of her and she starts paying attention to that table over here. 
And it's so true for each and every one of us in this room today that as soon as we have spent time in God's word, we've spent time in prayer, we've spent time learning God's word, uh, memorizing scriptures, serving in the church, experiencing the Holy Spirit, praying, all of a sudden we're on on a different level. And what does Satan's play at that point? To distract us. Well, look at what that person has. Look at the opportunity that person uh, had to, to do something great for God. That even in the midst of the kingdom of God, we get focused on, well, this church is doing that and that church is doing this. And we start becoming enemies with other churches because, well, they're doing more for the kingdom. Who cares what they're doing for the kingdom? Celebrate them because God's using them. What does God have for us to do in our corner of the, the world so that we can minister and help people understand who Jesus Christ is? That's the whole point of it. You see, because we're given an individual mission, both as a church and as individuals in this room, that God is calling us to do. And when you start looking what somebody else's table has, you start taking your attention off of what, what God has prepared for you. And when we do that, we get into a very dangerous spot. Now, I want you to realize something, though, with this. It's something I always say, that context is key in Scripture. Because we've heard the 23rd Psalm, but where does this fall in the Old Testament? One of the, the nice things when we look at uh, the New Testament is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we all know that they kind of overlap. Then we have the book of Acts, which kind of encompasses most of the rest of the, the New Testament. And then we have the epistles. We have all these letters to the churches that kind of fall in the same time period of the book of Acts. But when we look at the Old Testament, one of the things I can encourage you to do is at some point in time in your life, read through the Bible chronologically. Because then you'll start realizing how the Old Testament really is layered. If you're reading the Old Testament and it's like Genesis came first and then Exodus and then Leviticus, then Numbers, then Deuteronomy, no, a lot of this is overlapping itself. So even the book of Psalms, Psalms was not written just in somebody sat down and said, you know what, I'm going to write all these different songs right now. It was written over a period of time. And about a year and a half, two years ago, I did a personal study of the book of Psalms, when they were written, who wrote each psalm, and the general idea of what was going on in their life at that time. And so here's what I want you to realize, that the 23rd Psalm was written by David, and he wrote it most likely around the time of 1 Samuel chapter 18. And here's what I want you to realize today. I'm going to go back and give you some of the context leading up to that chapter And then I want you to realize that when David is writing this, of that you prepare a table in the presence of my enemies, he actually means it. This is not just David writing some sad uh, song of, oh, everything is good, you're leading me here, but life is a struggle and a bummer. That's not what's going on here. We have to realize that he's actually living this out. When we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, we see that Saul is given, King Saul is given a mission. He disobeys the mission. And then God rejects Saul as the king. We get into chapter 16 that God said uh, Samuel to anoint the next king. And David is chosen. Saul takes a horn of oil and anoints David's head with oil. Kind of see where we're going now? You anoint my head with oil. Chapter 17, we see David fighting Goliath and his reputation begins to grow. All of a sudden, people are singing the songs of Saul's killed his hundreds and David has killed his thousands. In chapter 18, we see that Jonathan, Saul's very son, and David are becoming best friends. That Saul's jealousy of David grows and he begins throwing spears at David with the intention of killing David. And in chapter 19, we see that Saul begins to kill and try to kill David again. So listen 
with that being the context, listen again with what's going on. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Who's his enemy? King Saul. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. That you've given me your spirit. You've given me the promise that I'm going to go on. And what we even see in 2 Samuel chapter 17 that he, God makes the promise that David's line will never end and that ultimately the Messiah would come through the line of David because the cup overflows. It never runs out. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David realizes that, you know what, I'm going to go through a struggle. I don't know how this is going to look, but I know that you lead me to good places, God. I know I'm going through a valley right now. I know you promised through Samuel. You anointed my head. You said I was going to be king. I don't know what's coming next. You're leading me through, but I know that even in this moment where I'm eating at the table in the presence of my enemies, that, God, you're going to be faithful to me. You've clearly defined the mission. I'm just going to trust now. You see, it'd be easy if we said that David was anointed king and then a week later Saul dies and David becomes king, but that's not what happens. When you study scripture, you realize that it was 15 years approximately from the time that David was anointed king, or to, yeah, from when he was anointed king to when he became king. How many of you, you get frustrated when you have to wait 15 days between a promise and the, the arrival of that promise? 15 years he had the wait in order from the moment where he was anointed king to when he became king. That's a long time. And even though you promised me, God, you're going to lead me here, even though I'm walking through. See, some, so often we're like, okay, I can walk through something with God as long as it's 15 days, but 15 years of walking through a difficult journey, I don't know, God. To have somebody chasing you, wanting to kill you, and all the while you're saying, you know what, he's God's anointed. That's one of the things that's incredible about David. David acknowledges that Saul is God's anointed, even though the scripture tells us that the anointing in that moment left Saul and went to David, that David had such a high regard for Saul because he had such a high regard for God. Because it wasn't David leading David through this, it was God leading David through this. And he was willing to trust and obey and know that God was in control. And when we start saying, you know what, God, I don't like the way you're doing it, watch me. Those are dangerous words. Instead, we need to say, you know what, I don't know what's going on, so let me go to Scripture so I can hear the voice of God. I don't know what's going on, so let me go to prayer and say, God, would you reveal truth to me? That, God, I don't know what's going on. Would the Holy Spirit comfort me and give me peace in this moment? Would the the gifts of the Spirit flow through me so that I can accomplish what God has for me to accomplish? That, you know what, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to serve because what we even see in this moment of David being attacked by Saul, how was he being attacked by Saul? Because he was in Saul's courts playing the harp as Saul was throwing spears at him. He was willing to serve the person that wanted him dead. But he was doing it because it's what God called him to do. 
He was faithful and he was consistent. And for each and every one of us in here, that's what we have to do. Now, through the course of this entire series, we've been breaking down a lot of the different ideas of like, this is what it looks like for a preschool student, for an elementary school student. We're going to do that again today because I want every single person that attends this church to realize that they can see the mission that God has for you and that you're able to execute on it. And so this gives us a kind of a benchmark or goals to go for. So we want our preschool students to believe that God loves everyone and created them uniquely. Know that God has a plan for everyone and know that Jesus made it possible for us to live in heaven one day. It's so simple, but at the same time, you, you go back to my, and I know I keep picking on her, and I don't, for the life of me, I don't remember her name, but my, my art teacher in second or third grade. Imagine if that was like a Sunday school teacher. Like, you know what, God's just not going to do that much with you. Imagine how much that would like sting. But how many of you know that sometimes the omission of saying something is worse or just as bad or worse than not saying anything? I want us to be encouraging our preschool students and in our nursery and begin speaking over them. There's power in our words. We talked about that over the course of the last several weeks, that we begin speaking truth over them so that they're living in a world where all of a sudden the possibilities are endless because they're willing to follow and go after God. Let's try that one again because that one needed an amen. It's speaking truth in Scripture, in the Word of God over our kids so that they can hear that truth and walk in the truth that God is going to use them. Amen. All right. We want our elementary school students to become disciples that know God uniquely designed each person and has a plan for them and seeks to support local and global missions. You see, Scripture tells us that it's up to us to either go or to send. Sometimes it's go and send, but that we need, if God doesn't specifically in our particular mission call us to go to the other side of the world to, to share the good news of Jesus Christ, then we are called to give to support that mission. By the way, that's next week's uh, message, so I won't go too far into that. But uh, disciples say yes to God's instruction to share their faith, discover their purpose, and care for others. They develop an awareness, love, and appreciation for all people. Let me encourage you with this. In order for our elementary school kids to be able to do that, you have to already be doing it yourself. Which, let me take that a step further. When you talk bad about people in front of your kids or your grandkids, they start saying, well, that person's not as valuable as this person. As a church, we value every person. And we value that every person experiencing Jesus Christ so that they can become intentionally discipled, so that they can become joyfully generous and give how God gives, and so that they can join the common unity of the church. So when we talk negative about somebody, we devalue that person, and then we show this next generation, younger generation, that, well, that person isn't as important as this person is. That person might still be lost in sin, and instead of talking bad about the person that's lost in sin, how about we pray for the person that's lost in sin and begin seeking the Holy Spirit of what are we to do so that person can experience Jesus Christ. Let me just give you the heads up. Uh, in case you didn't know, by the 47 pieces of mailing material that you get every single day, we're in uh, election season. I'm just going to, if people ask you, like, how should you vote? You should take the Word of God and the Holy Spirit and sit down and look and say, which one lines up best with Scripture? What does the heart of God say here? And in the process of doing that, don't talk negative about anybody. You see, because every single politician that you disagree with was created in the image of God. So as a season starts, 
let me encourage you, when you disagree with somebody, don't go to Facebook on it. You don't win any battles in comments. When you say, well, this is what I really think. Do, they, do you think they really care what you really think? And let me encourage you with this too. When you operate and live in unforgiveness, here's what ends up happening. It's like consuming poisoning, thinking it's going to hurt the other person. So you know what, I'm going I'm to be so bitter and so frustrated and so angry at that person, and I'm not going to forgive them. It would be like me going and drinking bleach and thinking it's going to hurt them. But we do it. We're not destroying our bodies, but we're just destroying our spirits and our souls. So in the course of the, this weeks and, and, and days to come, realize the fact that we want our kids to see that every person was created in the image of God and is worthy of the message of Jesus Christ so that they will grow up and go out and not have any kind of bias whatsoever, but will go and tell anybody that God speaks to them through the Holy Spirit that this person needs to know who I am because they were created in my image, my son died for them, and I desire for them to spend eternity in heaven forever. So back to here. I'm sorry, side tangent there. Uh, Disciples will say yes to God's instruction to share their faith, discover their purpose, and care for others. They develop an awareness, love, and appreciation for all people. Disciples understand that Jesus is the only way to heaven. They learn about God's mission, purpose, and plans which involve their identity and their gifts. When they realize at a young age that Jesus is the only way, then all of a sudden it changes the way that they act. And as it changes the way that they act, that they realize I have a mission, that if this is the goal, if this is the only way to get to heaven, then I want to start sharing it with people. But if I value people, then I'm not going to degrade people in the process of telling them about who Jesus is. So we need to be intentional about building up the value of every person so that they will then go out and share the mission, the goal, the gospel with every person. Disciples seek opportunities to pray, to give, and go so that others in their community and the world will know Jesus. They understand that God can call them to serve as ministers or missionaries. One of the things that I loved with my time as a youth pastor and serving as the junior high camp director is when I started, there was just like three guys that ran camp. When we ended and I walked away from it, we had multiple uh, races, men and women leading camp because I wanted every junior high student that attended camp to say, you know what? God called me to missions. God called me to ministry. The same was God, we fully believe that men and women can both be ordained preaching the good news of Jesus Christ because the world desperately needs Jesus Christ. And church, I want you to realize it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, that God can use you, change you, and allow you to impact the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter if your past was bubblegum trees. You can be an artist. It doesn't matter if your past is full of sin. God can use you to redeem you and allow you to accomplish the mission that God has for you. You have to just say, you know what, God, what is it that you want to do in me? For our youth, we want them to become disciples that begin to develop a divine urgency to share the gospel with family and friends and lead someone to faith in Christ. They passionately and sacrificially support local and global missionary activity. Hear that, divine urgency. We want our students to have a divine urgency. Again, this goes back to us as adults in the room. How can they have a divine urgency if we don't? We can talk to, oh, Jesus is coming back soon. The world's getting bad. Is that motivating you to say, God, come back sooner? Or is that motivating you to say, God, give me the boldness and the opportunity to speak the truth to people that time is running out and they desperately need you? 
if when you look at the world and things are falling apart, if it doesn't motivate you into telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ and it motivates you to say, you know what, Jesus, come back quicker, we're missing the boat. Because it's God's desire that none shall perish, but that all shall have eternal life. So instead of praying for the end to come quicker, how about we pray that more people enter into heaven when the end does come? That we want our students to be disciples that boldly share their personal faith story and the good news of salvation with friends and family to make disciples. We want our youth to become disciples that continue to deepen their understanding of God's mission, purpose, and plans, which involves their identity, their unique gifts, their abilities, and their personal sacrifice. We want our youth to become disciples that seek opportunities to pray, to give, and go so that others in their community and the world will know Jesus. We want our students to become disciples that understand that their daily work is a divine placement for advancing the kingdom of God and are always open to a specific call to new places of service. This is one of those reasons why I always come back and say, you know what, when it's time for me to go somewhere different because God calls me to somewhere different. Like I've had people like, you always say that a lot of times. Like, are you planning on leaving? No, I have no plans to go anywhere. But the day that God comes and says, okay, it's time for you to go here, it's like, okay, it's time. I hold this, uh, this role loosely because I know that God could call me to something different tomorrow because he's got something different for here. And if we want to model that for, for our youth, that we're open to a specific call and to new places of service, we have to be willing and saying, you know what, God, I'm faithful to do what you've called me to do here, and I will do it here, and I will be all in here until you call me somewhere differently. Because it goes right back to the 23rd Psalm, that God has prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. So I'm going to sit here and I'm going to eat the food which God has given. I'm going to do the work that God has called me to do. And when God either says, okay, move to that table or here's a different course, okay, bring it on. I'm not going to, I can't worry about the table that's over here or the friend that's sitting over there at that table. And like, you know what, I have steak and potatoes, but they have steak and steak fries and steak fries look much better right now than potatoes. Who really cares? Take what God has given you in this season because I like potatoes and steak fries. They're both good. Give me some asparagus. We're good. Like that's, you're like, it's almost lunchtime. Yes, it is almost lunchtime. But a nice steak, asparagus, potatoes, like an all-you-can-eat ice cream buffet. God, if you prepare a table with that, I'm going to sit here and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pig out until you call me to go somewhere different. Just don't call me to the salad bar. And then we want our adults, this is us now, we want our adults to become disciples that have a divine urgency to share the gospel wisely with others. Hear that wisely. Because as an adult, you should be sharing the gospel wisely. That, I'll go back and finish reading in a second. So often I see adults share the gospel, but they don't share it wisely. They share it like a hot-headed, like 14 or 15-year-old that has a lot of ideas but no filter. We need to be able to speak truth, speak it boldly, proclaim truth, but allow the world to see that we also love them in the process. Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Let that sink in for a second. Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. If you just walk up and you start verbally attacking people that disagree with you, they ain't going to listen to you. Because if they did it to me, I would walk right by them. The best way to engage me and want me to become a part of the conversation is actually be interested in who I am as a person. Build, build relationship, be interested in them, and then all of a sudden you'll watch as doors begin to open. 
that we, the share the gospel wisely with others and lead someone to faith in Christ. They passionately and sacrificially support local and global missionary activity. Again, if we won't do it, our kids won't do it. And if our kids won't do it, then how do we say we need to go and send? We're going to get into it really heavy next week. I'm just, I'm, I'm warning you that we talk about giving not because we need your money here, but because the mission of God needs to go forward. I don't want to ever hear someone say, well, the world's falling apart and the, the end is coming. Well, then that means we need to realize that our treasures here are absolutely not treasures. Gold is going to be the pavement in heaven. It might be worth something here, but it's not going to be worth anything in heaven. We're going to be walking on it. So we need to say, we're gonna, if, if the end truly is coming, then that should motivate us to do the will of God in a way that we've never done the will of God before and the mission that God has placed onto our hearts. Disciples enjoy fellowship in the local church and invite others to become a part of their community that values every person. Disciples are on God's mission, having a shared sense of purpose with other believers and supporting each other in their individual calling. Disciples connect the gospel with seeking the common good for their communities, praying and working for spiritual and social thriving. And disciples see their daily work as a divine placement for advancing the kingdom of God and are always open to a specific calling to a new place of service. Hear this. Your workplace. I know tomorrow's Monday. You have all those kind of jokes of like, oh, it's Monday. I wish it was Friday. Tomorrow is your opportunity to go into a mission field and be able to tell people about Jesus Christ. Are you going to approach it with a smile on your face and a smile on your heart knowing that tomorrow could be the day that you could share the gospel with someone and they could meet Jesus and their entire life change? Or are you going to go in it was grumpy because, well, my weekend wasn't long enough. My weekend was busy. I didn't get to sleep enough. I didn't get this or that. Michigan State lost again. Let's push a couple people's buttons there. I'm sorry. Go blue. Um, but here's the thing. We can have all of the excuses in the world about why I, I, I can't serve this or I can't do that. Look at your workplace as a divine appointment. Look at the next time that you have to go to a family gathering that you don't want to go to as a divine appointment. The next time you have to have a conversation with someone like, oh, I really don't want to talk with them, a divine appointment. Maybe this is the moment where everything changes in their life. Maybe this is the moment where they meet Jesus. Maybe this is the moment where all of a sudden things click and their sinful tendencies fall off. Chains are broken. They're set free. And it's up to us as individuals to see that happen.